Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, it's Fraser Myers here, Deputy Editor of Spiked. Before we get into this week's Brendan O'Neill show with Matthew Goodwin, I just wanted to let you know about Spiked's Christmas Appeal. Now, Spiked is not bankrolled by big money donors. We don't have any huge advertisers or anything like that. We really rely on funding from donations, from people like yourself, people who watch our videos, listen to our podcasts, and enjoy our articles. So if you haven't donated to Spiked already, then please dig deep this Christmas. As an extra incentive to be generous, we'll be giving away signed copies of Brendan O'Neill's brilliant book, A Heretic's Manifesto. If you give us £50 or more, we can send you one in the post. Now, stocks are in very short supply, so if you really want a copy, please get in there as soon as possible. The way to get your signed copy and to make your donation is by going to spiked-online.com forward slash signed book. That's spiked-online.com forward slash signed book. Thank you. Merry Christmas and enjoy the Brendan O'Neill show. Hello everyone, welcome to this very special live recording of the Brendan O'Neill show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my brilliant guest, Matthew Goodwin. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan, and if I can say it's a real joy to be with Spikes. I'm an avid reader and a, a big supporter, so good to be with everybody. Brilliant. We're a huge fan of yours as well. As you know, I've had you on the pod a couple of times before. It's uh, really good to have you on the end of year pod so that we can look back on 2023, work out what the hell is going on and maybe look forward a little bit to what might happen in 2024. So people will know you as an author, a keen observer of British politics, uh, a predictor of some of the populist trends that we're seeing recently, and also a pollster who, who, who takes the pulse of British people's views very, very well. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to kick off with a fairly broad question, which is how you see British politics sitting at the end of 2023. I mean, to some of us, it just looks all a bit boring. Rishi Sunak is not very good, in my view. Um, we seem to be long past Brexit, long past Boris, long past those revolutions that you've written about. And it seems to have settled down into a kind of boring blancmange of technocracy and business as usual. How do you see it? Do you think it's like that? Do you think there are tensions under the surface? What do you think is going on in British politics right now? Well, I think, um, firstly, it's a great it's a great question. I think, secondly, I'm I'm more skeptical about the the suggestion things things are things have calmed down. I think essentially what we've seen, firstly and, and most obviously, is a failure of the political class to really respond to the post-Brexit realignment that we've all talked about. And I don't really need to say too much about that. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that the Conservative Party has failed to renew uh, philosophically, ideologically and electorally. Um, that is partly why it's languishing at an average of 25% in the polls. It is heading for defeat at the election next year. I can really not see any way in which the Conservatives avoid uh, a defeat uh, at the general election. Um, and so the party will then be plunged into a prolonged and protracted and quite serious civil war over what is conservatism. And we can already begin to see the skirmishes within that, led by people like Miriam Cates and Suella Braverman and, and Kemi Badnock and, 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 and others from the more kind of liberal uh, centre. Um, so the conservatives 
I think are in a very vulnerable um, fra and fragile position. Um, but I also think in some ways we've gone back to the early 2010s. And the reason I say that is because among the political class in general, what we now have is a new big consensus, much like we had during the Cameroon era, big state, high tax, mass migration, accepting a Brexit, but uncomfortable with Brexit, still London centric, still, I would argue, focused on the middle class um, and utterly hostile towards any radical change. Um, alongside that, we have the increasingly visible uh, bubbling away of a new uh, revolt on the right in the form of Reform Party, which only over the last 10 days is now averaging around 10% in the polls, more than enough to bury Rishi Sunak. That reminds me of UKIP in the early 2010s. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing some pretty widespread apathy at the election next year as well, particularly among cultural conservatives who are simply withdrawing from the political system. That reminds me of the, about, of the early 2010s as well. And so when you put all of this together, what I think you can see both in the UK and the US, by the way, and, and much of Europe too, which I think we'll come back to discuss, first is a failure among the political class, especially the liberal managerial class to make sense of what has happened in the 2010s. The second is the ongoing uh, rebellion among voters, which is much more visible elsewhere in Europe, but we can now start to see it coming through in the UK as well. Um, and I think thirdly, the imposition once again of a top-down consensus, which the elite tend to agree with, but much of the country find um, deeply problematic, not only in terms of tax and spend and immigration, but also in terms of the ongoing spread of woke uh, ideology, radical progressivism within institutions. So I don't think we are out of the woods, as it were. I don't think we're in a calm period. I think that this is an interregnum. I think we're going to find in 2024 things really beginning to heat up again. Um, so it's interesting you talk about the consensus there, because I think a lot of people feel that top-down consensus very strongly in both on economic issues, on the question of immigration, which I want to come back to in a moment, on woke and cultural issues as well. I think a lot of people sense that the majority of the establishment shares a particular view of how society should be organised and how pe people should think, and it's not necessarily a view that is shared by huge numbers of the public. But one thing I think some people struggle with is the question of what might break through that consensus and shift politics in a new direction. You mentioned reform, but I wonder if is reform able to do the kind of thing that UKIP did? I mean, is it really going to explode in the same way that UKIP did? In your book, uh, Values, Voice and Virtue, we, we, which we talked about the last time you were on the podcast, uh, you write about the three revolts that really shook up British politics. The massive vote for UKIP, I think people sometimes forget just how much support UKIP had uh, back in the 2000s. Uh, also the vote for Brexit, which was uh, a ballot box revolution and a pretty wonderful one in my view. And then the vote for Boris Johnson uh, at the end of 2019, which was a further extension of that kind of populist urge for a new kind of politics. As you say, we now have kind of slunk back into elite consensus. Do you see any other kind of, re of revolt coming through? Is reform or any party like that capable of doing what those earlier revolts did? Or is it going to take a different kind of politics to cut through this time? I think because we live in a majoritarian system, it's incredibly difficult for anybody to break through beyond the big two. It's not impossible. Labour replacing the Liberals, Canada in 1992, we've seen those kinds of big rebellions before. Um, but it is very difficult. One irony of Brexit is it did remove one of the key 
avenues through which people could express their voice. European Parliament elections, those are gone, which really only leaves local elections, by-elections and general elections for challengers to use to try and take on the big two. So it's very, very difficult. I'm sceptical of reform for a number of reasons, not just around leadership and charisma, um, but also I think in terms of economics, they're in a place where I don't think many voters also sit. Um, I think if you're looking ideologically for a party that is probably closer to where a larger number of voters sit, it's probably a party like the SDP, but for different reasons, the SDP have also been struggling. I think they have an issue with with their name. I think there's a, there's a leadership issue there, and I think there's also a, a finance issue. People do often forget just how important the fundamentals are in, in mobilizing these kinds of revolts, and money is the most important of all. Um, and just the ability of parties to hold together uh, is also critically important. So, so it's difficult. I, it's not, however, um, impossible, because I think if you look ahead over the next few years, what, we've, what we are now beginning to see is the emergence or the confluence of a number of factors that are going to really create space for some kind of anti-establishment rebellion. Um, migration uh, is the third top issue for all voters. It is the top issue of all now for 2019 Conservatives. So as inflation continues to ease, as we've seen this week, as interest rates will start to come down in 24, the cost of living crisis will start to move into the rearview mirror, I think, in, in the next year. And the cultural concerns, I think, will remain very paramount uh, as a consequence of that. So we'll see immigration increasingly be merged with issues like housing. And I think we'll see growing concern over these sort of woke issues, if you like, under a Labour government. We'll see the extension of gender identity theory. We'll see the Racial Equality Act and things like that beginning to give out government contracts on the basis of race and ethnicity. Uh, we will we will continue to see the importing of of US style, um, you know, woke woke policies in schools and universities and so on. So the space for that party will definitely be there. Um, the other thing I would say, Brendan, is it might also be that one of the most important thing that's, things that's happened in 2023 is actually outside of electoral politics. And what I mean by that is, compared to five years ago, we now have a very vibrant ecosystem, which is presenting an alternative worldview, an alternative set of ideas in which political parties swim. And I'm talking about um, platforms like Spiked. I'm talking about the YouTube shows. I'm talking about the the podcasts and the Substacks and all of the um, new networks that have emerged pretty much since Brexit, actually, to try and give voice to um, the forgotten majority. And you can also see that in the broadcast media landscape, whether you're looking at at institutions like GB News or or Talk TV. The key point is that that legacy institutions are now being challenged. Like, like never before. So in that sense too, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic because I think the, the fragmentation of the institutions is also what is needed. There needs to be a, a, a new ecosystem that is capable of bringing all of these people together, giving them voice, um, expressing their values, pushing them into the political system. And then from that may emerge a kind of new social movement, a new political party, whatever. Um, but let's not let's not only look at electoral politics would be my point. Yeah, I really agree about the new ecosystem of alternative thinking and the number of people I meet who say, you know, thank God for Spike. You know, they almost see 
outlets like ours and also your Substack and and the YouTube shows that you mentioned as well, they see them almost as life rafts in, in an era which doesn't make much sense a lot of the time or where they just feel they're not being listened to and not taken seriously by the political establishment. Um, uh, following on from that, I want to ask you about an issue very close to your heart. You write about this a lot on your Substack, on in the media as well, which is the question of immigration. Uh, it's a, it's such an interesting issue. It's such a huge issue. I've always favoured a fairly liberal approach to immigration, but it seems very clear to me that immigration is increasingly the issue through which people most keenly feel their dislocation from political life and most keenly feel their uh, mistreatment by the elites because it's the issue they're told they're not supposed to talk about, certainly not in, in a very heated or passionate way. They will be denounced as far right. It's the issue over which we seem to have no control whatsoever. So the numbers of people arriving in the UK continue to go up, even when our elected representatives say that they want to get them down. And so it seems like this issue that is beyond people's control and which they're not allowed to hold strong views on and which seems unfixable in terms of how the political class make promises but always seem to break them. What's your understanding of, of how the British public feels about immigration right now? What does it mean to them? Why do you think it's an issue that, that touches them and, and makes them worry about the future of the country and the future of politics? Well, I think the, the very conscious political decision to continue mass immigration, in fact, to accelerate mass immigration after Brexit, will come to be seen as one of the most consequential decisions in British political history. I genuinely believe that. And I think Tony Blair's decision in 2004 has also now come to be seen as one of the most consequential decisions because it paved the way for UKIP, it paved the way for Brexit, it paved the way for Boris Johnson. The political class failed to understand understand and respond to the message of Brexit and 2019 with that big majority for the Conservatives. And Boris Johnson, who was not a Conservative at all, he was a bohemian liberal, um, put the pedal down even more on migration. So we now have net migration of 672,000, meaning nearly 700,000 more people are coming into the country each year than are leaving. Much of that, by the way, is not actually uh, working migration. We always, uh, we're always told that this is about benefiting the economy. Much of that migration is either student migration or dependence of students or dependence of workers or is humanitarian migration. So um, it's also increasingly coming from outside of Europe, from more culturally, religiously distinctive countries from um, Britain. Um, and it's also coming from areas of the globe that have been shown consistently to bring a net fiscal cost to the economies of um, more advanced Western states. OK, so why am I talking about it so much? I'm talking about it because I now genuinely believe that mass immigration is undermining Britain on three fronts. And I think this is where voters are. Firstly, on the economy. What mass migration is doing is it's allowing the elite to continue with a hollowed out political economy that basically uses uh, cheap migrant labor from abroad to keep profits high, to keep costs low, to keep consumption high, uh, and to essentially uh, plug the holes of short term structural problems in the economy. It, it basically removes any incentive for firms to invest in British workers, to invest in local communities, and if you are serious about tackling grievances around inequality, stagnation, declining living standards, you have to be interested in mass migration and you should be opposed to it. I think that's quite clear from the evidence. Um, 
it's also true, by the way, within this economic sphere um, on housing. Uh, something most people missed this week was a Migration Advisory Committee report, which basically conceded that mass migration is probably directly inflating our housing crisis. Now, I wrote about this 10 days ago and everybody on Twitter lost their marbles because I dared to suggest that immigration is driving our housing crisis. The evidence actually is overwhelming. It's driving up rents. It's driving up house prices. It's also clogging up the social housing system with about 48% uh, of all social housing in London now uh, uh, in uh, going to households that are headed by somebody born outside of Britain. Okay, so it's, it's going to become an enormous issue. It also matters, Brendan, I think, for issues around culture and security. And I know we're going to come on and talk about Israel and Palestine later on, but let me just make one brief point. Firstly, in terms of culture, what this kind of mass migration is doing is fueling a sense among voters that it isn't actually just their economy that's being undermined. It's their sense of shared history, their sense of shared identity and their ways of life. Um, this is not just to do with migration from mainly Muslim states, but is closely connected to it. And I'll give you one stat that I think is something that we will come to debate a great deal in this country. Um, today, the Muslim share of Britain is 6%. Um, by the 2040s, according to Pew, which is a, a pretty liberal centrist uh, 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 think tank, uh, it's going to be closer to 20%. So it's going to increase about threefold in the next 20 years. Um, this debate about who are we, what are the values that hold us together, uh, is going to become much more pertinent, and many voters want to have that now, and it is closely linked with this security issue. One of the things you simply cannot say in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks is that we do not have a problem with multiculturalism and immigration, because what we now have within many Western societies, to be blunt and just to cut through all of the complexity, are a significant number of people who basically don't like who we are, who don't like our country, uh, who don't like our way of life, who don't believe in the values that have held us together for a long period of time, who are openly anti-Western, um, and who are instinctively on board with organizations like Hamas. So I think October 7th has been so uncomfortable for many liberals in Western societies, precisely because it's pulled back the curtain to essentially show them what many of their opponents have been talking about for 20, 30 years, who have been saying, look, actually, as in France, as in Germany, as in Sweden, where there is now a widespread consensus on the left and the right that mass migration has been a complete failure, uh, that this policy is not going to be sustainable in the long run. I think we can now see that across the board. Here at Spiked, we value freedom above all else. And one of the best ways to get that freedom is to become your own boss. That might sound daunting, but don't worry, there is a way to make independence easy, and it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the revolutionary all-in-one commerce platform that helps you to start your very own business. Shopify empowers aspiring business owners like you across the globe, whether you trade in didgeridoos or gold-plated loos. And it does it by simplifying how you sell your goods both in person and online. Getting started and achieving growth has never been this easy. Shopify gives you the business insight you need to get your passion project off the ground. Plus, it lets you take that insight wherever you go. Shopify's single dashboard lets you manage orders, shopping and payments from anywhere. So you can see at a glance how your business is growing. 
Don't worry about losing your freedom. Shopify puts your unique brand at the center of everything. And through Shopify's simple customization tools, standing out from the crowd couldn't be easier. So what are you waiting for? If you like the sound of being your own boss, get started with Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash brendan, all lowercase. That's shopify.co.uk slash brendan to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.co.uk slash brendan. I'm really interested in your take on on all on this huge question, I think you're right that it's going to be a, a decisive question of British politics for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm interested in what you say on it, not least because um, I, I grew up in social housing in which the, the two heads of the household were born overseas, so I kind of have some of that experience. Uh, but also, it, it seems to me that there's this really extraordinary situation among liberals and upper middle class leftists where they seem very comfortable with the hyper exploitation of cheap migrant labor and they also welcome uh, a, a, a mass immigration often as a almost like a cultural weapon uh, they see it and they they sometimes openly talk about it as a means to uh, push back some of the more backward trends of the native population, the gammon, the problematic working classes. If you look at the way in which immigration is often talked about among those sections of society, firstly, they'll say they will openly say things like, well, who will make my sandwiches at Pret if we don't have these people coming here? I mean, that was literally a question from a middle class audience member on Question Time shortly after Brexit. So firstly, they're concerned about maintaining access to cheap labour. And then also they do talk about it as a means of diluting what they see as more problematic trends within the native population, especially the working classes. So they do talk about immigration quite explicitly in those terms. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the interplay, which I think is quite important, the interplay between these large levels of immigration and the problem of multiculturalism. Because it seems to me that what our societies have done in recent years is, on the one hand, welcoming large numbers of immigrants for the reasons that you've outlined, but at the same time, they've abandoned any sense of what British society stands for, what our values are, and even any sense that we're a good society worth uh, getting involved with. So they send this signal to immigrants who arrive here all the time that this is a pretty rotten place. We were born in the sin of colonialism. We're full of racists and Islamophobes. You know, be careful around here. Britain is not a particularly nice country. And you mentioned Sweden. Uh, I think the realization in Sweden is that they had mass immigration and they also completely failed to integrate the arrivals either economically or culturally. And they've ended up with some pretty severe problems. So is, is this a dual problem where on the one hand, immigration seems to be something that the political class can't get control of? And on the other, we're inviting in large numbers of people at exactly the time when we don't really know what our society is for or whether it's worth integrating into a society like ours. No, I think it's a great question. I think there are, I, I would make two points in response. The first is for the new elite, the new governing class, pro-immigration is, is basically a new religion. So it's become a, a source of status for the new elite expressing your pro-immigration credentials on Twitter, in the universities, in the lecture theater, in your columns, is a way of accruing more social status, esteem, um, and honor among your fellow elites. Chris Bickerton's book on 
European integration made a very good point when it came out before Brexit. He said one of the characteristics of the new elite today is that they really derive their status uh, not vertically from their relationship with voters, but horizontally from their relationship with other members of the elite class. And it was a really important point because that essentially is what much of this is all about. Um, but the second key point is how they view identity and multiculturalism. Now, there's a concept that I pointed to in my book called asymmetric multiculturalism. What do I mean by that? It's a very imbalanced way of viewing these issues that, that is held by the elite. Asymmetric multiculturalism is when, on the one hand, they say, we must celebrate, we must protect, we must promote every minority identity that we can see within our society, racial, sexual, gender, minority identities, must ultimately be prioritized over the majority identity. But at the same time, they tell the majority that you should either be ashamed or embarrassed of your identity, or actually you should repackage it around universal liberal themes like diversity or multiculturalism. Being British is not actually anything to do with having a distinctive identity. Being British, as we first saw during the New Labour era, and we can now see it pretty much every major sporting tournament around, uh, you know, that comes around every few years, being British is now about the celebration of multiculturalism. It's not actually about a distinctive identity at all. And Francis Fukuyama, in his book, Identity, which I, I would recommend, in which he says, you know, we do have a problem with woke. It is a distinctive body of thought in its own right. He says, look, being diverse being welcoming of diversity is fine, but it can never be the basis of an identity because it's like saying you don't have an identity of your own. Mm -hmm. And the new elite are ultimately now working overtime to encourage everybody to repackage their own British, English, Irish, Scottish identity around the embrace of diversity while simultaneously saying to minority groups, well, you should, you are allowed to have a distinctive identity and we will worship and promote and protect that identity at the expense of everything else. So that is why so many voters are really, I, I, I can see clearly in the data are zooming into this cultural uh, notion, uh, the cultural impact of migration and multiculturalism, because they can sense that over time, their sense of self, their sense of identity, their sense of who they are, which is much more important for working class voters, which is much more import important for, for people outside of the elite. It's a key part of their status. It's a key part of their sense of self-esteem that that is gradually being eroded. It's gradually being undermined. And that, of course, in turn um, produces enormous amounts of space for politicians and parties from Georgia Maloney to um you know sweden democrats or to you know, even left left politicians in germany now saying actually we're not ready to sacrifice our distinctive national identity on the altar of liberal cosmopolitanism yeah i think that's that's very well put and I, it seems clear to me that loads of voters out there especially working class voters are worried not only about economic security but cultural security too and they feel that their lives are under attack on both those fronts economically uh they are being told that they have to buy into the uh, market ideal and if they don't there's something wrong with them and then culturally they're told that their way of life their values their uh, national traditions are pretty worthless and possibly even problematic and they should jettison them or, or feel ashamed of them i think that two-pronged assault is really starting to get people's backs up enormously um just on this issue uh, for one more moment 
we've talked already about what form the rebellion against it might take. It seems to me if you look at Europe, you know, the people who say populism is dying, every now and then you'll see an article saying the populist moment is over and, and the adults are back in the room. And it's such a pipe dream. And I mean, you've mentioned Georgia Maloney, uh, the Sweden Democrats have done very well recently. Alternative for Deutschland is polling particularly well right now, whereas the uh, Chancellor in Germany is very, very unpopular. Uh, and we've had Geert Wilders as well storming uh, ahead in, in the Netherlands. Uh, uh, when you look at Europe and the populist uprisings, what is your view? Because it seems clear to me that some of these movements are pretty interesting. As you say, there are even movements of the left that are pushing back somewhat against the uh, uh, the stasis of contemporary politics. But it also seems clear that some of these populist representatives are pretty blunt instruments, uh, which doesn't mean people aren't willing to wield them against the establishment that doesn't listen to their views. But I think people recognise, even as they're wielding these blunt instruments, that they are not perfect and some of them have some problems of their own. I mean, Trump might be a good example of this, where he's a bit of, a bit of a crude instrument, but one that the American people were willing to use against the Clinton-style establishment. How do you see populism panning out? Do you think it will remain a right-wing phenomenon? Is it possible that it will become more far-right over time? Does the does the content of some of these populist movements concern you? Yeah, so the first thing to say, I think, is is, is to go back to a book I wrote in 2018 called National Populism, in which uh, Roger Eatwell and I argued that these movements that had really emerged, um, or at least had been... Um, made visible by the votes for Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump, you know, that populist moment that we were told really embodied or, or was symbolized by 2016. You know, Roger and I really said, look, this is actually a movement that's going to be here for the long term. It's going to consolidate. It's going to become more successful than than even than, than even what we saw in 2016. And many people, I think particularly the kind of liberal centrists, you know, who take a very short term view of politics, they view it very much through election cycles um the kind of ft view of the world where every six months there is a column saying well populism has peaked because some politician that nobody's really heard of in eastern europe or or south america has lost an election and they're sort of desperate for the world to revert to this kind of linear view of politics that they have where everybody is is heading into the kind of liberal progressive uplands um but those those uh those pieces have been consistently wrong if you look around particularly europe today and I looked at the polling ahead of our conversation. Uh, what you've seen is not just a consolidation of national populism, but you've seen its continued growth. Um, Maloney in Italy, uh, you know, Vops in Spain, now present in every single regional parliament but one. Um, Chega in Portugal, going to do very well at the election next year. Uh, France, where Marine Le Pen's the leader of the second largest movement in parliament, has just today the last 24 hours got legislation through which Macron opposed on immigration. Sweden Democrats now basically controlling the government through a confidence and supply arrangement. Uh, Viktor Orban has, has never been as strong as he is, as he is now. He's got over 50% of the vote. Yes, law and justice lost in Poland, but it wasn't exactly a comprehensive defeat. They still walked away with 36% of the vote. They're still the second largest party. AFD in Germany, the second uh, most popular party in the country, the the most popular party in Eastern Germany, and the most populous part, most popular party among men in Germany. Um, Austria, the Freedom Party, was almost destroyed by a scandal. It's now back to number one in the polls. Belgium, 
Uh, again, national populists have done very well, and Gert Wilders has just had his best ever election result at a national contest. So what is all of this telling us? It's telling us, firstly, that the concerns over immigration and the refugee crisis are coming back with a vengeance and that they were never really resolved in the first place. It's telling us that national populists have got better. They're more professional. They're more articulate. They're better campaigners. It's also telling us a lot, Brendan, about generational change, because if you look at the data on who's voting for populists in Italy, Germany, in France, it's often young millennials or Gen Z, particularly in France, for example, young women in the hospitality sector being squeezed by professionals on the one hand, the unemployed on the other, you know, feeling as though, you know, their rights and their position in society is being eroded. Um, the, these are not the angry old white men that we were told about in 2016. This is a generation coming up which has no experience of the golden years of representative democracy. It has no tribal allegiance to the big parties on the left or the right. It is basically open season uh, now against uh, the established class because you have generations of voters that have known nothing other than populism and volatility and chaos. Uh, who have grown up against the backdrop of Brexit and Trump. So for them, this is all completely normal. Why wouldn't I vote for somebody like Maloney? But I think the other thing I would just say is, if you look, um, by the way, also at Donald Trump's polling numbers, they're very strong. Uh, he's polling very well nationally. And in some states like Michigan, he's currently 10 points ahead of Biden. So let's see, actually, if he's blocked from the ballot. Um, but we can see, I think, where 2024 is heading. But if you if you, if you you look at this point that you make, and I agree, I agree with it, it, these are imperfect vehicles. Often, when you look at what they do in power, or at least the first time they get power, they're not very impressive. And then they come back and they're a bit more organized. So if you look at what Trump wants to do with the state in the US, some things I'm personally uncomfortable with, but he's now talking about essentially replacing an entire layer of the US administrative state, because he realized during the first term, that he just couldn't get anything done because the state was was diluting or was was openly opposed to its policies. If you look at how Le Pen is now guiding legislation through Parliament and getting it passed, this is something her father, put simply, would never have been able to do. So there's a professionalism that I think that's coming that's coming through here too, um, and we are right to be concerned. I think um, because in some of these cases, and Trump is the most obvious. I do think we are looking at movements that are fundamentally opposed to liberal representative democracy. I do think Trump is a is a classic populist. I think he is not a fascist, but he, there there are aspects of Trumpism that would make me instinctively nervous about him getting his hands back on the White House again, for sure. Um, but the reason national populists, my last point, are flourishing and left wing populists generally are not is because the dominant questions of our time are questions about the nation and not class. Left-wing populists thrive when the questions are about class. National populists thrive when the questions are about nation. And, and this is still fundamentally a debate about nation. How can we keep nations secure? How can we strengthen the borders? How can we hold on to our sense of shared national identity, national history? Uh, how can we defend our national community from wokeism and from radical Islamism, the two assaults on either side that are undermining people's sense of national belonging? These are, to some extent, class debates in that it's often the working class who are more 
more concerned about those questions. But these questions are fundamentally about nationhood. And that is why these parties are still thriving. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And it is striking that often the populist discussion tends to map itself onto class interests in, in an interesting way. Not always, but sometimes it does. If you look at the voters for Brexit, for example, many of them coming from working class backgrounds, sections of society that feel completely ignored, completely left behind. But I think you're right. And, and one of the points I often make to left wing friends of mine is, listen, if you want to go back to what you might see as classical politics, discussing the economy and uh, class interests and who has power in the workplace and who doesn't, then the thing to do before that is to restore the integrity of the nation, to defend the idea of the nation. You can't have democracy and thriving political life unless you have control over the nation itself and that you, unless you are a self-determining country. The one seems to come before the other, I think. Um, you mentioned there the twin problems of wokeism and radical Islam. And I did want to ask you about this, especially in response to the Israel-Hamas war. I think the fallout from the 7th of October, from Hamas's pogrom on the 7th of October, the fallout in the West has been extraordinary. Uh, you know, we've seen supposed pro-Palestine demonstrations, which have often lurched into just being pro-Hamas demonstrations. We've seen people, young people on university campuses expressing sympathy for Hamas. And there have even been polls uh, uh, indicating that people hold views of Jewish people that can only be described as anti-Semitic. There was a poll in America uh, last week which found that 67% of 18 to 24-year-olds think Jews are an oppressor class and that Hamas has a point in its war on Israel. A, a really extraordinary finding. Um, tell us about some of the things you've found uh, in relation to public attitudes towards Israel and, and Hamas. What, what do you think are the, are the main concerns that have come up since the 7th of October? Well, I think there are three things that, uh, that, that, that now cannot be said that some people tried, tried to say before October the 7th. The first is it's now impossible to say we do not have a problem with our universities because yeah. clearly we do, and especially the elite universities. And I'll come back to that. The second is it's no longer possible to say we do not have a problem with multiculturalism and immigration in the West, because clearly through the uh, pro-Palestine, pro-Hamas demonstrations and protests, it's pretty obvious now to everybody that, that we have a serious issue uh, that flows directly from immigration and multiculturalism. And the third thing that I think it's now impossible to say, you can no longer say after October 7th that we do not have a problem with Generation Z, with the Zoomers who were born after the mid-1990s, because clearly we do. If you look at all of the polling evidence that has been accumulated since October the 7th, Zoomers, 18 to 24s, 18 to, to, going 18 to maybe 30, um, they're consistently the most hostile towards Israel, the most likely to say they sympathize with the Palestinian side over the Israeli side. They're the most likely to express sympathy for Hamas. They're the most likely to think the attacks were somehow justified. Um, and they're also consistently the most likely um, to say things like their national identity isn't really import an important part of who they are. Western states are institutionally racist. They're ashamed of their national identity. Now, some people will tell you that's just simply a cohort effect that will wear off over time, that the young have always been rebellious, they've always held these views. That's simply not true. If you go back and you look at the surveys that were done in earlier um, uh, decades, we never really saw 
attitudes to this extent? Because I'm not talking about, you know, 5% of, of young people saying, you know, we should we should support Vietnam during the Vietnam War or whatever. We're talking now about, about 25 to 30% of 18 to 24-year-olds who are expressing these views. I think clearly what is going on here is that they are they symbolize an ideological war that we're losing. I think they symbolize the radicalization of the institutions, particularly the schools and the universities. Um, what was most revealing about this conflict was the way in which those polling results on 18 to 24s were quickly followed by the remarkable um, uh, experience of, of watching the presidents of the elite Ivy League uh, universities in America essentially downplaying anti-Semitism on campus and essentially saying that that this was somehow not much of a problem and could you know could have a pass on campus um it's a reminder that what what essentially has happened is that the cultural left which dominates the universities and i've shown this time and time again in britain if you want an example um in the 1960s left-wing academics to right-wing academics um you know, the left outnumbered the right by a ratio of three to one uh, today that is about 10 to 1 so so the universities have basically moved sharply leftwards they're completely dominated by academics and and also administrators who identify on the left um and they've also become more radical over time so they've 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 sort of um not just swung leftwards but they've become much more um supportive of this very divisive identity politics um ideas like critical race theory gender identity theory and so on i've worked in universities for 20 years okay i mean I've, I've i've literally been on this roller coaster i've seen it and i think that is what is so alarming in that we are clearly now producing um cultivating generations of young people who are instinctively wired to see the worst not the best in our country and are instinctively wired to sympathize with our enemies, um, are the least likely of all to, to view radical Islamist groups like Hamas as, as terrorist organizations, which is, you know, completely bonkers. And I think there is an alliance that is basically emerging between kind of younger Gen Z who, are, who have been steeped in this identitarian, um, simplistic, crude worldview where there are only oppressors um, and there are the only the oppressed, and, and that is basically it. An alliance of those students with then the radical Islamists who are, you know, also saying many similar things. I mean, the, the woke and, and Islamists have a lot of things in common. I did write about this a few weeks ago. They're both revolutionary. They're both illiberal. They're both suspicious of free speech. They would both happily sacrifice free speech and free expression on the altar of their religious claims. Um, they're both anti-democratic. They have no interest in pluralism um, and tolerance. They're both organized around rituals, um, you know, taking the knee or shouting Allah Akbar. Um, they're both instinctively anti-Western. Um, they are both united around promoting this sort of culture of repudiation. Anything that, that is outside of their creed should be repudiated. And, and you can see this alliance of sort of, you know, Gen Z students, kind of an older generation of radical progressives, radical Islamists, um, you know, enabled by the failures of multiculturalism, enabled by the failures of the institutions, essentially now coming together and colliding um, and making it very, very difficult for us to find our way back 
to a more unifying story of of who we are and time is running out i mean that was another key message from october 7th is that when 15 percent of londoners 15 one five one in eight londoners say hamas is not a terrorist organization you've got a problem right you've got a problem i mean uh, within your midst and this is not about people who don't understand the question, right? I mean, I've, I've asked the question in multi, many different ways. Um, we now have a, a not insignificant number of people who who clearly hate the country they're living in. And I, I'm deeply disheartened to see that view is shared among Gen Z. So without being too depressing, Renda, the one thing we need to do quickly is reform the institutions. We need to reform the universities. Mm. We need to get greater viewpoint diversity within them. We need parallel universities that are offering alternative uh, degree programs uh, that are offering alternative routes into into education. And we need to start pushing back hard against radical progressivism in all of its forms in every public sector institution, from the NHS to the civil service, to the police, to the Ministry of Defense. If organizations are promoting critical race theory, which is hardwired to undermine Western nations, then those institutions need to be reformed and that ideology needs to be rooted out. And that's also true in schools. So yeah, there are things we can do. I'm not a kind of, well, the world's going to hell in a handcart kind of guy. I think there are things we can do, but it, it means we're going to need a political movement, which is much more radical, which is brave, which is courageous, which is willing, by the way, to take on the taboos that dominate the elite class. And you saw that lastly this week with the school guidance that the Tories have put out on gender identity, which again has become dominant in universities. The Tories couldn't even bring themselves to ban social transitioning, right? So when you've got a Conservative Party that's essentially saying, we're going to allow schools to pretty much keep going in the direction they're going, or we're gonna issue them with guidance, which of course, every headmaster that doesn't agree with that is gonna ignore it we're setting ourselves up to fail here. We need something that is serious, that is a genuine alternative, that is radical, that is committed to breaking up these taboos. Because if we don't get there, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, um, as we can see with the data on generational change, it's going to be too late. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think the starting point to doing something about these problems has got to be, I think, recognising the enormity of the problem. And I think if if the fallout from the 7th of October doesn't make people realise that, then I worry that nothing will, because it really has been an extraordinary couple of months in terms of what we've seen. Uh, open expressions of support for her mass, as you say, especially from the young. Um, sympathy for barbarism, essentially, treating that barbaric act as if it were a form of resistance and uh, just rampant Israelophobia and anti-Semitism. And I think it, for me, it's worrying for two reasons. Firstly, because it seems pretty clear to me that there is now an interplay between uh, these Western attitudes and what Hamas itself does. I mean, Hamas ought to have surrendered a long time ago. It's been pummeled by Israel. I think one of the reasons it hasn't is because it knows that it is getting this uh, Western sympathy from the intellectual classes, from the young, from the institutions, and that gives it, that emboldens it, and that makes it think that at least it's scoring uh, moral points against Israel. So I think it, one of the reasons Hamas is holding out is precisely because of this pro-Hamas sentiment in sections of the West. So I think it's an incredibly dangerous ideology that has taken hold on campuses and elsewhere. But then the other reason I've been concerned is because it has demonstrated, I think that we face a civilizational 
battle. I know that's a very grand thing to say, and I don't want to go all Samuel Huntington and say that there is uh, necessarily a clash of civilizations, but it does seem to me that a lot of the issues that you write about and which we write about on Spiked as well touch upon not only questions of economic security, cultural security, reason, uh, and all those other things that are good, but also civilization itself and, and Western civilization and whether it's something worth standing up for. So I wonder if, if you think that post 7th of October and all those issues that you've just touched upon speak to a broader disavowal of the virtues of Western civilization amongst the young and certain members of the intellectual elites who are now being drawn to a much more barbaric way of understanding their own society and the world itself. Well, I think we are at a civilizational moment. And I think, you know, that is what everybody probably on this call can instinctively feel. I think that's why we are all so interested in politics and why we are pursuing alternative points of debate outside of this very narrow public square that we now have where discourse and ideas are very tightly controlled. And if you deviate from the consensus, uh, you are either silenced or you are stigmatized as being somehow socially unacceptable or a pariah. And we've we've seen that in many, many forms from Kathleen Stock's treatment to Jordan Peterson and beyond, right? So I think we all can sense that we are at this civilizational moment. And it is a clash of cultural values, uh, a clash of religious values, first and foremost. And it is going to become more visible to everybody and it's going to become much more serious. I'll give you two, two statistics to bear in mind about how this country, Britain, is going to change between now and 2045. If you look at the Migration Advisory Committee report, which came out this this week, which is a, a pretty bland government body, nobody really took notice of it. Um, well, they're forecasting that uh, by 2045, we are going to, if we maintain net migration levels of at least 400,000, okay? Now at the moment we're running net migration at 670,000. Um, then Britain's population will increase by around 10 million people by 2045. So let's say crudely, that's around about nine cities the size of Birmingham. Okay. And 2045 is not really that far away. It's like 20 years or so. Um, there is no serious plan for what that is going to mean for the country, not just economically, but also culturally, because much of that migration, if we sustain current migration, will be coming from outside of Europe. It will mainly be coming from Nigeria, India, Zimbabwe. Um, and if you look at the small boat arrivals, um, Afghanistan, Sudan, um, Iran, etc. Okay. So the, the civilizational moment around, you know, what are the cultural values that are going to hold us together? I think is going to become much more acute, especially when you have this experiment with mass migration on one side and a complete absence of any integration policy on the other. I mean, Brendan, you'll remember this country talking about community cohesion after 2001. I mean, we at least used to talk about integration. We don't even talk about it anymore. Yes. Nobody is talking about how to build cohesive societies. And to be honest with you, I don't actually think you can build cohesion. I think the only thing that really works with cohesion is lower migration and slowing the pace of change over time, which is why... I recently polled, should we have a five-year freeze on all further non-essential migration, as in migration 
outside of the NHS and social care? Shall we have a five-year freeze so we can absorb the change of the last 20 years, right, since New Labour? Uh, over half of the country agreed with that. About 85% of Conservatives said, sounds like a pretty good idea. I think probably that's where we're going to need to get to is some kind of moratorium on, on mass migration. Um, because the civilizational issues, whether it's re whether it's regarding um, the attacks on free speech, whether it's regarding, you know, school teachers being beheaded in France, whether it's regarding um, women um, consistently being sexually harassed, if not raped by um, people from outside of the country, as we've seen in areas like Kent, um, the, the, this is going to become a much more pressing um, challenge. And it's one that's being enabled, as I've said, by educational institutions and really a slightly older generation of people who clearly no longer have any interest in promoting and protecting the values that did hold us together in earlier years. We did at least used to be interested in telling ourselves a, a more unified story of who we are. We're not really interested in telling that story at all anymore. So I think the civilizational moment is going to become much more acute. It's going to be visible uh, increasingly as we go through the next decade, because you can already see the effects of Boris Johnson's reforms on the street and in towns and cities up and down the country. And if you look at countries like France, where, you know, a remarkable statistic in the Times last week, since the Charlie, uh, since the attacks in Paris in 2015, and the Bataclan, um, and other venues, um, there have been 30 organized plots that have been disrupted in France since 2015, right? Three zero. Um, that kind of um, stuff is going to really, I think, add a sense of urgency mm -hmm. to this debate. Um, so it's inevitable that we'll have to uh, overturn the taboos that have been constraining the discussion so far. It's inevitable that we're going to have to have much more radical policy options. We'll end up going where the Danes have gone and where the Swedes are going and where France is going with its new legislation. We're going to end up clamping down massively on welfare benefits for new arrivals. We're going to dramatically tighten up net migration rules. We're going to see the legal architecture of the post-war period the refugee conventions overturned. We're going to see EU member states flouting EU laws uh, like the Dutch have already started to do. The Dutch are saying we're going our own way on migration and asylum since the election results. The Swedish left have just come out yesterday and said they're not going to change anything that the uh, populist Sweden Democrats have put forward on migration. Maloney is saying the EU status quo on the refugee issues around Northern Africa is not sustainable. You know, we're going to basically end up having parties saying it's time to build fortress Europe, or we're going to end up with politicians in Britain saying it's time to build fortress Britain. Um, and we're going to see a sharp right turn on migration and asylum policy, because I think, to be blunt, the people will demand it. It will be another reassertion of uh, popular sovereignty at the expense of everything else. And I think the, the people will just rally around politicians who say enough is enough. Uh, we want serious change. 
uh, Matt, wonderful insights as usual. I am I am now going to fire some questions at you from the audience. Uh, just to finish off, um, this is an audience of Spike supporters, so we appreciate them very much, and they get to ask us questions. So um, the first one comes from Yoni, and he asks you. This kind of follows on from what you've just been saying. Um, why can't the Conservatives get a handle on illegal immigration? Is it because of the judicial system that does seem to block them? Or is there something a bit more fundamental going on there? Because deep down, they don't really want to do what is necessary in order to control the issue. I think the Tories basically are constrained internally by two things. One is a parliamentary party that leans further to the cultural left than most voters, and the other is the party's donor class, which is much more liberal than than um, the likes of Suella Braverman. So there are some internal constraints that are stopping the Tories from doing things like leaving the ECHR, right, which would be one part of fixing this problem, not not the only part, I'll come back to the other parts in a bit, but just to leave the ECHR, a large number of Tory MPs would view this as being below them as low status politics, right, they don't want to be seen to be breaking taboos because they derive their status, as I said earlier on, by being seen to be nice and welcoming, and it's the penny mordants of the world, we should be really nice to to immigrants and trans people, and this is just about diversity, what's the problem? Uh, leaving the ECHR, overturning key parts of the new Labour legislative legacy, Human Rights Act, the Equalities Act. You know, Chris Coldwell, if you ever get a chance, wrote a great book on the US um, where he made the argument that essentially, and this has just been updated by Richard Hananier, who made a similar argument in his book on the woke, um, both of them argued that basically what happened is the rise of the radical left was enabled by the constitutional maneuvers that were put into place in 1960s America, that basically that created the legislative framework in which a rights-based um, radical progressivism could take off. I would argue in the UK, we had something similar, but later. What you had during the New Labour years, the Equalities Act, the Human Rights Act, a bunch of other stuff Blair did, basically set the foundation for this rights-based radical wokeism which then flourished right so you can't really get rid of things like crt in schools or gender identity theory you can't really deal with issues like the small boats while you're sitting on the foundations of a of, of this kind of legislative legacy uh, which is which is actually what some conservatives have finally started to realize particularly you know the new conservatives miriam cates danny kruger who i think basically are much closer to where voters are than anybody else in the Conservative Party. And what they're saying is, look, they should have used the 80 seat majority to completely overturn the key pieces of legislation from the new Labour era, keep the good bits, but dump the bad bits. Um, and they failed to do that. So we need a much more sweeping response to to this issue. What is also clear, Brendan, briefly, is Labour have no serious plan for this at all. And that's just not you know me playing partisan politics. I mean, I've not met anybody in the National Crime Agency and elsewhere who thinks Labour's plan will work. The plan is smashing the boats, uh, sorry, smashing the gangs. Okay, well, nobody thinks that will work because you, you smash one gang, there's another one that pops up. They're going to re repeal the illegal migration bill. They're going to repeal the Rwanda bill if it ever gets through. So what are you left with? What we're going to see over the next five years, escalating levels of net migration and escalating levels of illegal migration because Labour won't do what, what needs to be done in order to tackle it. I do support the principle of the Rwanda plan, right, which makes me unpopular among my academic colleagues. Why do I support it? I support it because 
nobody who's looked at this issue seriously has said we can deal with it if we don't have an active deterrent. We need to have a deterrent. And I'd love that to not be Rwanda because of the connotations that come with Rwanda, but we need to have an active deterrent uh, whereby it is made clear to people that if they risk their lives crossing the channel, and some people have tragically lost their lives in recent weeks, they will be relocated elsewhere. That is one of the only things that is going to smash this business model. Having a, a functioning home office as well would help, where we haven't got a backlog of 180,000 cases. But fundamentally, this is about changing the optics of the entire business model. If you try and get to the UK, you will be located elsewhere. We have to have an active deterrent. It's one of the only things that's going to work. Okay, this is a question from Chris. Chris says, where does net zero sit in terms of people's concerns? Uh, are people concerned about it? And there's another question as well, which we can throw in. What should be done about the green consensus, which promises to take us forward, but very often takes us backward? And you'll also know, uh, Matt, that in relation to Europe, which you look at a lot, there have been numerous revolts against net zero. Currently in Germany, there is a farmers, truckers revolt against new policies. We've seen it in the Netherlands as well. Um, what are the British people's attitudes towards net zero? Is it something they're worried about? So the two key points, firstly, net zero is not as salient as the people who really do care about it think it is. So it's typically, you know, it's badged under environment climate change typically comes in at sort of number five, number six, way behind the economy, NHS, immigration, education. Um, and so what people often tell you is, well, it's not salient. And actually, if you say to, to voters in a poll, should we should we be doing more to tackle climate change? 70% will say, yes, we should. OK, so that's how those stats are then used to say, well, this isn't really an issue. What I've, what I've done, however, is, is actually polled people on the specific policies of net zero. And I did this a few weeks ago, um, and I wrote about it at the time, that if you say to people, okay, well, you're on board with climate change, you know, how do you feel about things like, you know, ULES cameras in London? How do you feel about paying environmental subsidies and um, adding to your energy bills? Um, how do you feel about, you know, 15-minute cities? How do you feel about, you know, 20-mile-an-hour zones, all this kind of stuff? And what you often find when you when you drill into the specifics of net zero and you make it clear to people they're going to pay a personal financial cost, they become much more opposed to these issues. ULES was an incredibly unpopular move, not just because it was linked to Sadiq Khan, who is an unpopular mayor, but actually because people felt that that policy was basically taking them for a ride, um, which it was, and it was punishing the working the working man and woman and, and people that are just trying to go, go around London, you know, trying to trying to get their jobs done and they felt that hang on we're responsible for one percent of emissions this is just completely bonkers um so when you drill into the detail it becomes much less popular now this is why i did share those findings with number 10 this is also why i think rishi Sunak decided to go quite heavy on net zero um why he wanted to question it because i think he can see the potential in it but I don't think he fully understands the potential in that issue because then he sort of did a complete U-turn and started going on about banning smoking and reforming A-levels and stopping HS2. Now, whatever you think about those issues, you know, there's no consistent, coherent story with Sunak, right? One minute it's let's question net zero, the next it's let's ban people from smoking. 
And I think this is fundamentally the problem at his, the heart of his premiership. He's got an issue here which taps quite nicely into his, his change narrative. People don't want to go along with this kind of elite consensus and you package net zero within that as part of this pro-mass migration, pro-net zero, pro-woke consensus held by the elite. People don't want that. They want something else. Um, but then he backs off from it. You know, he doesn't go hard when it comes to reforming schools. He doesn't go hard when it comes to reforming net migration. He doesn't push as hard as he could on dealing with illegal migration because fundamentally, I just don't think the Tories get it. I think for the Tories, it is about strategy. It's not about sincerity. And and that consistently has been the problem over the last 13 years. It's why they will they will suffer a heavy defeat next year as many of those 2019ers who took a punt on Johnson and who, to be honest, didn't understand who Boris Johnson was, in my view, have now suddenly realised that you know, this party is not going to challenge a consensus. This party is enabling the consensus, is promoting the consensus. Um, and I think you'll you'll start to see that on net zero. I'll make Brendan a bet. Maybe I'll bet you a, a pint of beer or 10 quid. I guarantee that the Tories, after a defeat, are going to rally around a very wet liberal centrist moderniser a kind of you know david cameron 2.0 penny morden someone like that and they're going to project everything onto that candidate and they're going to say the reason we lost was suella braverman the reason we lost was brexit the reason we lost was we embraced the culture wars the reason we lost is because we moved to the right the real winning majority is in the is in the center and there are going to be a lot of disenfranchised very pissed off people in this country. And I think that, that is the moment where actually something different will start to emerge. Okay, Matt, just a couple of couple more audience questions for you. This one is from Kerry. This is an interesting one. Wouldn't it be more useful to promote British values and a sense of who we are rather than to fixate on the people who are coming here? So I guess that's that's a question that you will have thought about. What 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 is the more important issue? Is it the whole at the heart of British society or is it the arrival of large numbers of people? How do you, how do you yeah. think about that? I don't, I don't view, I don't view it as mutually exclusive. I, I personally would argue that you need to make people aware of what is going on in the country uh, for us to, to get even to be able to get into that debate about reinventing who we are and what our identity is. I'll give you two reasons why. The first is I actually don't think most voters understand what's happening in a country at the moment. I really don't think they've tuned in to what's happened since Brexit. You know, we are all hyper political people, right? We're giving up some time on a Wednesday evening to discuss politics. Like, this is great, but this isn't normal, right? I mean, okay. your average voter out there really is not tuning into the detail. They do not know that net migration has rocketed to 700,000. They don't know what Boris Johnson did around the reforms. You know, they don't know what's happening around issues to do with net zero. They don't know what, when we talk about the elite consensus, so they, they don't really fully understand what what we're talking about they have no idea really how britain is going to change over the next 20 30 years and so public opinion often lags decisions by some way and it will take time for a lot of this to seep in and when you mention things like woke and wokeness even still you know in focus groups i get a lot of voters who will say well that that's just being nice right that's just being liberal they don't really understand that what i would argue what we're dealing with is a revolutionary political ideology that is fundamentally illiberal. Um, they don't quite understand the terminology that we use and how we have these debates. And that's not a criticism. It's just people are busy. You know, they've got a lot of things going on in their lives. The biggest cost of living crisis for 50 years. So I think 
at a basic level, we have to explain to people what's happening and why their identity is being undermined and weakened. And that opens a door to then a conversation about, well, what what are the ways in which we can do a better job of promoting and protecting who we are? What are the reforms that need to be brought in? What are the institutions that need to be changed? How could we do things differently? Beginning with the education system, rolling out to public bodies and the civil service and beyond. How do we need to reform party politics? Do we need to change the electoral system? You know, all of these things, I think you can then begin to have a debate. But look, I'll give you one example. I had a focus group in Stoke-on-Trent a few weeks ago. 12 people sat around the table. Okay, busy people. They come in in an evening, a Monday evening. They were getting 20 quid for participating, drawn from all different aspects of life. I said, what do you think about Keir Starmer? Okay, three of the 12 didn't know who Keir Starmer was. Right. So sometimes we tend to think that people are kind of super tuned in like we are. Uh, and I think at the basic level, we talk about this civilizational moment. I think you have to explain it to people. You have to explain it again and again and again why we're in this mess. What are the things that are driving it and what are the things that are going to unfold over the next few years so they can at least be, be ready for it and be prepared for it? Okay, Matt, this is the last question, and it's a useful one because it kind of looks forward to next year. So this is from Nico. He says, we're going to have a general general election in 2024. Uh, what would you like to see achieved in that election? So I, I guess this could be a two-pronged question. Number one, what do you think will happen? And number two, what would you like to see happen either in the election or possibly from the fallout after the election? Labour will win the next election. If you look at the lesson from inflation around the world, from Argentina to Sweden to, to the Netherlands to Italy, every incumbent government has been completely smashed, pretty much. Um, they've either been completely turfed out of office or, as is the case with Joe Biden and Macron, they've been severely weakened. So don't even look at the next election just through the lens of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. Just look at it through inflation. Every incumbent has been smashed. So I'm expecting a Labour government what's the best outcome that the conservatives are really smashed that they are absolutely blown apart um a 97 style near wipeout with a generation of frontline conservatives experiencing their michael portillo moments right the camera zooms to jacob rees morgan ian duncan smith and all these people losing their seats a generation of tories basically out generation of Tories have presided over the last 13 years. The worse the Conservative Party does at the election, the greater the chance of building something different. That is fundamentally how I'm viewing the next election. Because if, you, you know, if you're on the left, in the centre, on the right, if you're just disillusioned with politics, what I actually think we need in this country is a people's movement that transcends left and right. You know, that is what we need. We currently do not have a vessel that can tap into the enormous frustration and disillusionment out there in the country. And we need that vessel soon. We need somebody that is speaking from the left and we need somebody that is speaking from the right. And we need people who are saying, look, we're in a completely new era of politics now. We, we, we're we not going to get badged as, you know, all the, the words that, that we know about. We're going to build something that is going to transcend party politics and is going to genuinely represent the views of the of the people. Uh, and if you can get if you can get donors behind that, and I don't mean, you know, single donors, it's got to be people led. But I mean, if you can get money behind that and you can get some serious people behind that, 
particularly maybe people who have lost their seats at the election next year, people who have played an active role in our civic life and our cultural life, people who have demonstrated their commitment to changing discourse and, and language and debate in this country, then I actually think people would be incredibly receptive to it. So that's what I what I hope emerges from the election is the building blocks for something fundamentally different. Matt Goodwin, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.